Good evening, guys, and welcome to another Bible study here at Calvary Chapel, Birmingham. Tonight, we're continuing our walk through John chapter 14. But before we get into the Word of God, let's have a word of prayer just to help us prepare our hearts before the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you that we can come to you, we can worship you, and we can adore you, Lord, and adore everything that you have done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Father, we just pray now that you would open our hearts, that, Lord, we would be obedient to listen, and that, Lord, you would get all the praise, the honour and the glory. Comfort our heart, Lords. Comfort our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the passage this evening is John 14, 1 to 4. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Last week, we started looking through John chapter 14. We looked at the immediate context at the beginning of John chapter 14. We saw it was the beginning of the upper room discourse, which was Jesus' last words of encouragement and challenge the disciples before he went to the cross. And we saw the immediate context was bad news, wasn't it? It was bad news for the disciples. Jesus was going to leave them. Judas had just left the room and they weren't quite sure why. And ultimately, Jesus was going to go to the cross. And in the process of that, some of the disciples would make mistakes. Indeed, Peter being singled out by the Lord in particular was, was prophesied that he would have a, a failure. He would abandon the Lord and would go through a season of difficulty. This is why verse 1, as we discussed last week, starts off with, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. It's a hugely reassuring statement by Jesus because it says, do not be afraid, do not be anxious, do not be disturbed. But it also makes amazing claims about Christ's deity. Jesus is fully worthy of adoration, worship and trust exclusively on the same level as the Father in heaven. But how does Jesus further consolidate this, this understanding, this truth? Well, he, he continues in the discourse. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And this evening we're just using a few verses from the New King James Version, just because the translation is a bit clearer here, but we would usually use the NLT. But in verse 2 it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. Everybody is obsessed, aren't they, with their future. With retirement plans, with pensions, with, with funds for future holidays, even with life insurance policies. People want to be comfortable. People want to know for certain that their future is secure. You know, security, investment, inheritance, they're all buzzwords, it's buzzwords that get companies excited, lawyers rich and us interested in how we are to be certain about our future. And one thing is sure, if you are certain, if you are um, able to say this is going to happen in the future, you're often motivated 
to do something about it or to work towards your future. Imagine the scene for a second. The disciples are disturbed. They are agitated about what their future holds. Their Messiah, the King Jesus, has told them he's going to leave them. And their master, Jesus, tells them to trust him. Trust him in spite of what he has just said. Trust him in spite of the revelation that he would leave very soon. The question then must be asked, I think, naturally. Why would the disciples trust him? Why would you trust somebody that's just said, oh, by the way, I'm going to leave you soon? It's a very unnatural thing to do. Certainly in the human perspective, it is. The disciples, in essence, were being tempted to have a pity party. To say, Jesus' death means our certain doom. But it is worth reminding ourselves that Jesus had already told the disciples on a number of occasions that he was going to conquer death. That death was not the end. That he was going to live and live eternally. John 10, 17-18 shows us that Jesus had authority to take his life back up again and to lay his, down, lay his life down voluntarily. The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life. So I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Jesus could in essence resurrect himself. So there was no need to fear death and the disciples have been told that. The second thing is that Jesus used his death, his burial and his resurrection as a prophetic sign to Israel, Matthew 12, 39 to 40. But Jesus replied, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then finally, Jesus makes it crystal clear that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life with Jesus. John 6, 39 to 40. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of those who were given to me, but that I should raise them up on the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. So the disciples have been told this, but they hadn't quite clicked. It hadn't quite registered with them that this was what Jesus was actually saying. And they didn't need to fear death and feared Jesus' departure because his departure was not the end. Why did the disciples behave like this? Well, two possibilities. We know the disciples in the room now believe in Jesus Christ and therefore are going to spend eternity with him. But remember, at this point in time, they weren't yet born again because to be born again, Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to shed his blood for humanity and had to rise again. Because that was what was required to bring new life into humanity through faith in Jesus Christ. It was only after the resurrection that the spirit was given to the disciples in John chapter 20. They were operating in faith and therefore they were saved. But at this point in the story of scripture, they had to yet be filled with the Holy Spirit. The seal until the day of redemption, which happens, that the, the process that the Spirit does on the heart to bring new life hadn't yet happened 
in those disciples. They were still living technically under the Old Testament covenant. Jesus as a man was still living and indeed operating in this point in history under the Old Testament covenant. He was revealing the New Testament's truths. He was revealing the new covenant in all its fullness in him. But he as a man was still operating under the Mosaic law. It was after his resurrection that Jesus filled his disciples with the Holy Spirit. And it was 50 days after the resurrection that Pentecost occurred and the new economy, the new way in which God was operating, the church age, started. And secondly, and just as importantly, as we discovered or discussed last week, the disciples were still potentially operating in fear rather than faith. And this was obviously the immediate context of the beginning of verse one from last week. But what Jesus says next is staggering. Jesus combats fear, he combats uncertainty, he combats a lack of direction with certainty about the future and with certainty about what would happen in light of his own resurrection. Verse two, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus says he's going to do something and he's going to do something in the aorist tense, which means it's a one off. It's a it's a one off final, never to be repeated again process. The strength of the language here suggests that the disciples would have as much confidence in Jesus, death and burial and resurrection as they were about the fact that Jesus was going to prepare a place for them. Jesus wasn't just leaving them without a plan. Jesus was going to make a place for them to come to. The question though is where would he prepare a place? Well, we, we see from the passage, it says clearly the father's house, which I think is Jesus' family name for heaven. And of course, heaven is mentioned over 500 times in scripture. Heaven is a place of certainty, like Jesus' words. We know that heaven exists and we know that in eternity past, Jesus, the Holy Spirit and the Father lived in communion in heaven. And therefore Jesus has been there. He's seen it. He knows it's real. And he's telling his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place in my Father's house for you. We know it's heaven because there are multiple passages in scripture that say the Father's house, uh, where the Lord resides, where the Lord calls his home, is heaven. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men, they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Notice, in heaven. Psalm 33, 13 to 14, the Lord looks down from heaven and sees the whole human race. From his throne he observes all who live on the earth. And what is the Father, or what is Jesus offering or promising to prepare in the Father's house? It says, many mansions. The word mansion is interesting in this particular Bible translation because it's translated originally from the Tyndale Bible. And you get this sense that Jesus is preparing this massive, expansive, blingified house for everybody to come into. Individual mansions in the sky. There's lots of, there's lots of hymns uh, in the past talking about mansions in the sky and the hope of glory. And you get this sense, don't you, that you're going to be like an English country gent kicking back, just living a great life 
in eternity. And of course, we know that eternity is going to be wonderful. But the Greek word here doesn't suggest that. In fact, um, it suggests, as Dr. Andy Wood suggested, a theologian from the States, that these instead are dwelling places. They're apartments, maybe, or maybe even they're tents. Ready for a soldier to go on a march. And they may possibly even be temporary dwelling places. It was not uncommon for houses to be expanded uh, by families at the time of a wedding. Apartments would be added onto houses so the family could live together. Whatever was in the mind of John at this point, we see that Jesus is preparing a place. He's preparing his father's house to receive people who trust in him. But then the natural thing must be, if it was temporary, if the temporary aspect of this was in mind when John was talking, why? Why was it not permanent? Especially in light of the countless promises we see in scripture about having eternal life with the Lord. Verse 3 gives us the answer to this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. He is coming again to receive disciples to himself. And then from that point onwards, they will be with him. This sounds an awful lot like 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Which again, just for clarity, I'm using the New King James Version because translation is better. Verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And then John 14, 1 to 3, we repeat the words again so we can compare the two. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. We know that 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, introduces the topic of the rapture of the church, a singular event in history where Jesus comes back for his church to rescue his church from the coming judgment of the tribulation period, which will be a seven year period of judgment upon the earth and a seven year period where Israel are called back to the Lord. And then after that point, the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth with his disciples, with with the believers in him to start and indeed establish a thousand year reign called the millennial kingdom. You see, the rapture describes the Lord coming in the air to take believers from the earth to heaven. The return of Jesus Christ describes the Lord Jesus Christ coming from heaven to earth and bringing his saints with him from heaven 
to earth to be with him and to reign with him. This truth had never been explicitly taught before in the New Testament. There were clues in the Old Testament, as we have covered before extensively in the Rapture devotional series. It's worth checking that out if you haven't, because this will be more fully explained. But Elijah and Enoch both were taken to the Lord in heaven by the Lord himself. And this was a clue or a picture of what may happen in the future. But Christ encouraged his disciples with this new and profound teaching that he was going to come for all believers in Jesus and take them to be in heaven with him. Tom's going to put up on the screen now a comparison table. And it's absolutely remarkable and was first noticed by a Lutheran theologian about 200 years ago how exactly similar these two passages are. They must be describing the same event. So in John 14, firstly, we see the word trouble in verse 1. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, we see the word sorrow. They're very similar. In verse 1, twice we're asked to trust in God. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, we're asked to believe. In verse 1 of John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking and he says, God and then me. In verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4, it says Jesus, God and Jesus. In verse 2 of John 14, it says, told you. But in verse 15, it says, say to you. Again, very similar language. In verse 3 of John 14, it says, come again. And in verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, coming of the Lord. In verse 3 of John chapter 14, it says, receive you, the disciples. In verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, caught up. In verse 3 of 1 John 14, it says, to myself, Jesus is speaking at this point. And then in verse 17, it says, to meet the Lord of 1 Thessalonians 4. And then finally, in John 14, 3, it says that where I am, there you will be also. Remember, Jesus is speaking. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, ever to be with the Lord. There is no mistake here. These two passages are describing the rapture of the church. The future moment when Jesus will come and rescue believers from the coming judgment of the world. And of course, Jesus was the first to teach this chronologically in history to the church. And indeed, Paul was likely taught about the rapture of the church by Jesus after his radical conversion in his intensive discipleship school, which we know he went through one on one with the Lord. Now, this explains why if the word in verse 2 for mansions is temporary, it is indeed temporary. Because we know that believers will not remain in heaven initially, but they will come back after the judgment seat of Christ, where believers will be judged for their faithfulness to Jesus. They have like a massive award ceremony for everybody that has lived for Jesus and indeed believed in Jesus about how faithful they have been. We know after that event, after the wedding feast has occurred, that the believers in Jesus Christ that are in heaven will come back with Jesus to the earth to be part of the millennial kingdom. You see, Jesus' words in verse 3 are the key here. Where I am, there you will be also. They mirror 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, ever to be with the Lord. The key thing here is this. 
wherever Jesus is, we will be with him. So we're going to be in heaven with him after the rapture for seven years. We're going to come back with him in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And then we're going to be for all eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. There is not one believer who will be lost from the, from the Lord Jesus Christ. There will not be one believer <clears throat> who goes missing, who is not accounted for, because he promises to keep every believer safe for all eternity. It is a radical truth that once you believe in Jesus Christ, you are God's, and there's nothing that can change that. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is why we can have faith and confidence that no matter what we go through in our lives, that no matter what happens to us, that no matter what we ultimately face as a trial, we are reminded that it is all worth it because Jesus Christ is our future. We are in him in terms of our theological position. We are in Christ and therefore we will be with him for all eternity Romans 8 38 39 and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither our fears for total today or our worries about tomorrow not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love no power in the sky above or in the earth below indeed nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord Nothing in all creation includes you, includes you when you make mistakes, includes you when you mess up. You're a part of creation. This is a promise of eternal security. This is the kind of inheritance we are promised as believers. We are safe in the Lord's hands forever. And when he come, comes back um, in the air for his church at the rapture, we will be gloriously transported up to heaven in an instant. <clears throat> As I've mentioned before, there is much more to say about this doctrine of the rapture. And it is definitely worth spending some time going through the devotional series that we did a few months ago on the rapture of the church, because we will look at multiple Bible passages, um, not just this Bible passage, exploring in great detail what this means, why we have rapture, and what the significance of this is. But the key thing tonight is simply this. Jesus is comforting his disciples in their hour of need by telling them to trust in him and he is going to prepare a place for them. The disciples are believers in him. This is the context of the upper room discourse. As we observe what's going on around the world, we see increasing hostility. We see increasing uncertainty. We are not necessarily sure what our future holds on this earth. Certainly in the human sense we don't. But Jesus' words cut to the heart of our current situation, as they cut to the heart of the disciples' situation. Trust in me is the instruction that Jesus gives to you as today's disciples, because I am going to prepare a place for you. You see, today is the day that we need to share the gospel with somebody else. Today is the day that we need to live out the truths of the gospel before the world. Because God is coming, Jesus Christ is coming again. And it could be sooner than we think. 
We don't know the time or the hour as we cover in the devotional series. But what we see around us is a world that is increasingly distressed. Maybe some stage setting for the future tribulation period. We see things going wrong. And as somebody very helpfully said, when you see, and we've just been here, haven't we? When you see Christmas decorations, when you see Christmas lights, if you're in America anyway, Thanksgiving comes before Christmas. The Christmas lights point to Thanksgiving coming, although they aren't related directly to Thanksgiving. And that's a similar picture of the rapture and the tribulation period. But these truths are for believers. They are exclusive, and I will cover this more next week as we continue through John 14. But you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved by Jesus at the rapture. Maybe you've stumbled, stumbled across this teaching online and you're like, what is he talking about? Who is this Jesus? Well, I'm going to encourage you with the gospel message this evening because the only way to be safe is to believe in Jesus Christ. How do I believe in Jesus Christ? How do I become saved? It's very simple. Jesus kept it simple on purpose. First of all, you need to recognise your need of a saviour, that you have messed up, that you have fallen short, that if you were judged before God's perfect standard, you would be guilty. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever looked at a woman or a man lustfully? Have you ever got angry with somebody for no reason? If you have, you've broken God's law and you are guilty. If you recognise your guilt, then you need a solution. You need somebody to pay the price that you should pay for your guilt. And that was what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. He went to the cross. He took your place. He took your sin and he died on the cross for you. He shed his blood for you. And he rose again on, on, uh, from the dead on the third day, showing us that God the Father had accepted the sacrifice. Okay, so you believe that. You believe you're guilty. You believe that Jesus Christ died in your place and rose again from the dead on the third day. What do you do then? Well, you do nothing. You do nothing because you can't add to this process. God did it all for you. All you need to do, sitting wherever you are right now, is believe in what God has told you. Is believe in what Jesus Christ has said to you and believe that it applies to you, that you have messed up that you need forgiveness and that Jesus Christ is the only way that you personally can be forgiven. John 3.16, my favourite passage in the Bible because I claim this passage myself when I came to Jesus at the age of 11. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his, only, his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't keep putting off this decision to trust in Jesus Christ. We have seen the world. We can see what's going on. We can see Bible prophecy increasingly over the last two millennia starting to line up. We need Jesus today. We need his eternal life, his forgiveness today. So if you don't know Jesus, put your trust in him today, right now, while I'm still talking. You can do this on the sofa, <laughs> wherever you're watching this. Believe in him and he will set you free. He will give you eternal life. He will be the one that saves you and saves you eternally. He will go to prepare a place for you if you accept him this evening. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is the essence of what we believe as Christians. And this is the essence of why the disciples could take comfort in the midst of the storm. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us, Lord Jesus, to take it on board. Help us, Lord Jesus, to believe your word and to live in the light of it. And Father, for anybody who doesn't know Jesus yet, I pray that tonight will be the night that they accept him as their saviour and their Lord, and that, Lord, they would know you for the first time this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. Take care.